And it's interesting, I've said this sentence with a different number at the end of it uh, for the last eight years. And if you really consider Restoration Church from 2010, that's when we publicly began to meet in this movie theater, 2010. But we spent about a year prior to that sort of incubating in our community and getting to understand the city we live in and figuring out ways to serve and honor God and bless people. And so every year when I say this to you all, I really do think to myself that the, the time really does seem to fly. It's sort of like raising children. You turn around one day and you're already eight or nine years into it. And this has been the experience in my home and certainly here. And it's, it's really hard to believe that this much time has passed since our launch. I remember when we saw the restoration, this was the first church I was allowed to wear New Balance in from the front of the room, which sold me immediately. Like everybody was like, hey, I like those sneakers. And I was like, this is awesome. Nobody's yelling at me because I'm wearing sneakers. And it was just a match made in heaven for me. Uh, <clears throat> time goes quickly though, right? I remember the first meeting we had in my living room where about 18 people showed up to hear about what we believed God wanted to do here. And there's been a theme that sort of defined our church over these past years. That first night in my living room, we just gave thanks to God for what he had done. And I can remember the first time we met in this building, we contracted with, at the time it was Hollywood Theaters, before this place was even built. I sort of hunted down the, the builders and got connections to the corporations that own this place, and we were able to secure a contract to meet in this movie theater. And we had no idea what was going to happen. I mean, we planned a lot. That's always been a theme of our church. We're pretty organized and try to take that stuff seriously. But at the end of the day, when we began our preview services in August of 2010, we really had no idea what was going to happen. And what did happen was people showed up, and they still show up to this very day. And they show up in our community groups throughout the week. And so that day, we gave thanks to God for what he had done. Over the years, trusting God and giving thanks for what he has done here has been a really common theme, and I pray it's also one in your heart. And so with each passing year, we've, we've tried as a church to take our next steps as a church in faith and rooted in wisdom. We don't ever want to separate those two things. We do believe in faith. We do believe that God directs and leads us, but we also want to make decisions that are rooted in sound wisdom. That's sort of the two poles that our church has functioned from since the day it was birthed. And although some steps have been more challenging than others, I did not think we would be in a movie theater for eight years, but we have been. And although we give thanks to God for this space, we still aggressively look for something to meet in more permanently. That's been a more difficult step for us, but it's a step that I want us to really think about. Whatever the step is, we want to be the types of people that really see how God has been good to us in it. And it is my prayer that right now we are all here sort of giving thanks to what uh, God has done. And so today is a good day. It's always a good day for us as a church family, and it's a day that requires us to think a little bit about our history in order to better plan our future. And that's why over these next weeks, I want to talk to you all about some of the key traits, I like to say the DNA, that make restoration, restoration. These are the sort of, this is the stuff, the bone marrow in us that makes our church what it is. We're a particular type of church family. In many ways, we are unique, and we thank God for that. What God has built here has largely been built through, obviously, his goodness and his grace, but us. And so our church, we've always seen, we've seen it not as like a corporation with like a machine that's sort of, uh, you know, running plays and developing ministries. We've always understood our church to have a very strong feel of community and, and family. And I like to say, and over the years, this, this vision has sort of become more solidified in my head, that our church is more like a large kitchen table. And if you think about what a kitchen table is, it really is the, uh, it's the place and the family where a lot of the family time that we have is sort of built out and developed. 
Uh, some of the most meaningful conversations I had growing up were at my kitchen table with my family. I grew up in a pretty old school, uh, northeastern New York Italian family, and we ate dinner every day at five. And I can remember those formative times, like when my dad had bad days at work, or my mom was frustrated, or my brother and I were acting out. Whatever it was, the kitchen table was sort of a place where there was great meaning and worth and value. And over time, a very substantial family dynamic developed. The same is true in my family uh, today. The big difference being I never have bad days at work or get grumpy like my dad. It's a totally, totally different animal there. But, but it, like in my house, some of the most challenging and meaningful things that we have discussed, they happen around these times we have at the kitchen table. And although not everybody can be at the table every single day, the idea is that thematically we want to have that memory in our heads as families. And the same is true for our church. And so every time I look out in this room or at our community groups, I sort of feel like we're one large family gathering in different seats around a large kitchen table. And this is one of the things that makes us us. I'm not saying there aren't other churches like this. I'm just saying our church has been birthed on this idea that we are truly bound together in Jesus, trying to serve him and, and walk together with him. And so over these next weeks, it's really my desire that we spend some time revisiting some important ideas, some important truths that are now very visible in our building. These truths have brought us here, and they ultimately will lead us forward. And so in case you haven't noticed, if you could look past the donuts, the language on our banners in the foyer officially changed today. You've heard me mention the words gospel community and mission verbally for years now, uh, but we decided today that this would be the day we officially launched that language here and across our media platforms in the weeks that follow. And so in the past, if you sat in this room, you know that we've talked about, as far as our discipleship pathway goes, our discipleship rhythms. And by that, I simply mean the sort of pathway we try to lay out to follow Christ. We've used the words connect, grow, and serve. And they're very good words. They're meaningful words. They are words that matter. And while they're good, about two years ago, we really felt it necessary to start clarifying those headings. We wanted to put more teeth into those words so that people had a clearer idea and understanding of what we are and where we're going. And just as important so that we could apply these truths in our lives. And so these sort of words, these synonymous words, connect, grow, and serve, have been replaced with more pointed headers, gospel, community, and mission. And if you've been with us for a while, you have seen or heard these headings and you recognize that they are really what, what makes us us. Understanding who Jesus is in the Bible, the gospel, we'll talk about that here in a few moments. Community, recognizing that we walk together in a family. Jesus did not make a disciple and send him out into the earth. He made 12 in the early days. And then what happened was is they were in this rooted relationship with each other and they connected with other people. The Christian faith has always meant or been designed to walk with other people. And so we value community. And we also value mission which is oftentimes the most neglected idea of the Christian faith. But mission simply means the very cause that God gave us through his son Jesus is meant to be lived out in our very lives. There is a large mission that God has for us. It's a mission of redemption. It's a mission that is often costly for our lives and sacrificial. But the bottom line is the very same grace we celebrate here today is the very same grace God wants us to help other people understand so that hearts and lives are healed and that there is a greater, a greater force of goodness in the world through the people of God. And so we like to say that gospel community and mission, they truly develop or make up what a fully devoted follower of Jesus is. And that is what our discipleship pathway is designed to produce here. These rhythms are what I want to talk about over these next week, weeks, excuse me, because God tends to do great things in people who deeply believe them and practice them. And so with that in mind, I want to revisit some ideas in new and fresh ways. 
and I want to make the case for how they have laid a firm foundation for our church family in the years past, and how they must continue to be the foundation for how we actually press into our future. And so we'll jump right in today. This is still part of our We Believe series because I want us to deeply believe that we believe these truths matter. And so we're going to examine only one We Believe truth today. We believe in the gospel. We believe the future of our church family is rooted in having the gospel deep within our hearts. The gospel is more than just a style of music. It's more than just a singular sentence in the Bible. It is actually the way that God has chosen to work in the world. It is truly the truth that helps us to find Christ. It is the truth that helps us to grow in Christ. It is the truth that sustains our lives in Christ. It is truly the epicenter of the Christian faith. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is what this church was built on. And we don't ever want to move forward forgetting that. And so we're going to look at two passages today. One in Luke. Because in that passage, Jesus gives us a very clear understanding about what our hearts value. It dictates what we do in life. And then I want to talk about how the gospel is meant to be at the epicenter of our hearts. And so I'll reread what was read to us a moment ago for context. Luke 6, 43 through 45. Jesus is talking about really the motives for why we do what we do. And he says, gives this sort of analogy, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. He's talking about consistency. A certain type of tree should produce a certain type of fruit. And he goes on to say, each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. And then he goes on and he applies this immediately to life. He says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And so he's talking about how sort of the root of who we are is going to be displayed in the things we say and the things we do. And he uses this idea of the human heart in the middle of all this. And so when the Bible talks about the human heart, it has a very specific meaning and application for our lives. We talk about the heart in this room quite a bit because in the scripture, the heart is an incredibly important theology. Now, on the contrary, before we jump into the biblical meaning of heart here, I want to sort of talk for a few moments about the modern world's understanding of the human heart. Our modern culture has a very sort of trivial, or I like to say colloquial, understanding of what we mean by the human heart. It's sort of like a, a tongue-in-cheek or a bit of a slang statement. And it usually refers to, when we reference somebody you know, making decisions out of their heart or thinking with their heart, it usually refers to somebody making decisions that are purely emotional and in its worst form can be somewhat irrational. Let me give you some examples here. People will say, oh, well, you know, when analyzing a decision that somebody has made, they'll say, well, that person was just thinking with their heart, not their head. And that's sort of like a polished way of making a very derogatory statement about somebody who made a bad decision and didn't think it through, right? So in this case, we have this idea that the heart can, can maybe not be so good when it drives life. Or uh, think about this. I don't know if you've ever gotten this counsel. It's often not good, but maybe you have a major life decision in front of you and you don't know what to do. And somebody says, listen, it doesn't matter what you do. Just follow your heart. And then you quit your job and you're homeless, right? <laughs> and your boss and the electric company and the mortgage company says, follow your heart right to the bush. That's where you live now, right? <laughs> Following your heart, that's certainly, this, there's actually a lot of interesting writing on the concept of passion in our world today. And a lot of it's not very good how we sort of sociologically been deceived by this word. And we think that everything should be sort of married to this idea of abundance. And that's not always the way life is. Sometimes life can be very difficult and the Christian faith calls us to persevere. And so the heart can obviously be something that misleads us at times. And I say all this to say these, these statements communicate that at times thinking with your heart can be disconnected from sound thinking and your other God-given decision-making faculties. 
Now, don't hear me saying the heart is not a central way in the way we make decisions. I'm not trying to you know, undermine or undervalue emotion. That's, we've been designed this way. We all are emotional in some sense. The idea, though, behind the heart is that we need to be balanced. We really need to have a theology of what we understand in our lives that drives our lives. And so in the Bible, the heart refers to something much more than these sort of like modern-day proverbs. It refers to something much more than just emotion. It represents the whole of a person's life. The heart is sort of signifying the very depths of who you are, who I am. Our mind, our will, and our emotion. The heart sort of encapsulates all three of those ideas. It's sort of like the, the fuel that drives your life. It really refers to, I like to say it this way, it refers to the control center of your life. It's like the motherboard that all of the other decisions of your life flow out of. It is the motivational center that drives you. It is the motivational center that sets your life priorities. We don't just, even if we're not thinking through what we're doing, we are likely doing, there's no likely about it. We are doing what we're doing because there is some internal compass driving what we see is or isn't a priority in life. And that's why the Bible places such great emphasis on identifying what is in our hearts and calls us to make sure that it's never anything but Jesus. That's ultimately where Jesus goes in this passage. He says, listen, there's lots of things you can have at your center. And ultimately, you need to know whatever is at your center is going to dictate what you say and what you do. In other words, a fig tree should produce figs. So whatever your figs look like, that's ultimately who you are in the middle. And we should want to know who we are in the middle since that drives our decisions. That's what he's saying in Luke 6. Think about this. Our actions, what Jesus is saying here is every single action, as significant or insignificant as we deem them or others deem them, he's telling us that everything we do in this life, everything we do not do in this life, Every deed, every word is much more than just an external action. It truly reveals who we are in the depths of our hearts. There is something deep inside of us driving what we do or do not do. He's saying that every person, whether they know it or not, has this center, and that defines them and truly directs their steps. So think about this. Logically speaking, it would make sense that this is something very important to know. I mean, if we were to say, like, hey, get in your car and drive home, but you're not going to hold the steering wheel. We're going to put you in the passenger wheel, or the passenger side of the car, and blindfold you and just see where the car goes. We're just going to, like, put a stick on a gas pedal and drive it. You would say that is crazy. There is no way I'm going to let a vehicle just drive my life off of a cliff or we don't have cliffs in Florida. We barely have hills. Drive it into a pole or something, right? You would want some thought into that. You would want to be holding the wheel. This is the idea behind this, is that we should not think that the wheel randomly turns in life. We should give some thought to what our center is because it directs our steps. And so the scripture gives us a warning. Here and in multiple places, Paul is very firm with this idea that anything, anything that we put at the center of our lives, for the Christian especially, it, if it's not Jesus, it is the ultimate form of foolish living because it will fail you. And I really think there is a, there's an application in this, even if you're not a Christian, I mean, you know, you've heard these ideas, and I'll give some examples, but uh, we're not against sort of like accruing wealth or money here, but if you're so bent on wealth that it kills all of your relationships in life, you're so driven by ambition, whether you're a Christian or, or an unbeliever, all of these things can really sabotage life. You know, we've heard these ideas, we've seen these things in people's lives, maybe we've even been subject to them. There is a need to be thoughtful in our lives. That's a human reality. And so think about this. Let me give you some very common examples. Take, for example, the person who places and pursues relationships with others at their center. I always talk about this idea because it's the most common thing we engage in. We are all bound in relationships everywhere we go. Naturally, relationships are a good thing. The Bible encourages them. 
But this person, the person who makes relationship their center, what happens is they start to orient their whole life around being in and staying in relationships. And what's ironic about this is that that sort of compulsion is often what damages the very relationships that you're trying to have in, in keeping them healthy. Because what happens is, is if your center is relationship and you apply that expectation, uh, it's a godlike expectation to a friend or a spouse or a child or a coworker or a boss or an employee, whatever it is, when you put the expectation of somebody else essentially fulfilling your every dream and wish in life when it comes to your relationships, you are going to ruin that relationship. The pressure of that will break a person. And if you've ever had that pressure applied to you, you know it is a weight that you don't want to live under. We want to have healthy relationships, but to put a human at the center of your life ultimately makes them a godlike figure. And that person, it is inevitable, is going to fail you we, because we all fail in life. That happens. So the very desire to have a healthy relationship and the pursuit of it here is the thing that actually kills it. False expectation. Or let me give you another example. I sort of alluded to it a moment ago. The person who values success above all else. Ambition. Nothing wrong with success. Nothing wrong with ambition. We deeply believe there's a theology of work in the Bible, whether that's the way we raise our children in the home, or we're homeschooling our children, or we're employed in the world, or in school, whatever it is. God loves it when we are positively contributing to the world he created. He loves that. So I say all the time, your vocation, whatever it is, matters to God. Because if it is good and it creates good things in our world, it matters to God. You are blessing people. Oftentimes, they don't even know they're being blessed by your work. But you are blessing them. That's the great side of this, right? However, if your vocation, my vocation, becomes the center, then what happens is oftentimes in the name of our work, at the expense of the people who are watching us, we ruin them. They are watching us ascend a ladder without them. Our husbands, our wives, our children are often left in the wake of that person's ambition, whatever it is. And if left unchecked, it has the high potential to damage those relationships. There's even like a secular proverb about this. Make sure when you climb the ladder in life, when you get to the top, it's the right one. This idea is not just a biblical idea. It's a very strong human idea. So we want to be careful about that. What's driving us, you know, can affect other things in life. And Jesus' point in Luke 6 is that everyone has this center. We all have something driving us, something that is ultimately defining who we are, and what we do. And the bottom line here is we should not go through life unaware of what this is since it makes us us. Much like what we do as a church, it is defined by what, by what makes us us. When we say we value the gospel, that starts shaping what we do and what we don't do. And so if you want to figure out what your center is in life, what the, what the motive of your heart is in life, then you have to figure out what matters most to you in life. That's where the conversation starts. If this is the first time you're hearing this question, or maybe you're revisiting this question, it's something we encourage regularly to not just answer this once, but to rethink it, because often in life our priorities change, our circumstances change, so our center might drift at times. It might evolve over the years because of the expectations in our lives. All this to say, there are some really good diagnostic questions that don't necessarily guarantee that we'll get an answer here, but I really think they significantly increase the chances of, of determining what our center is. Let me give you some very common ones. They'll be behind me. If you want to know what your center is in life, if you want to know what motivates you in life, a really easy way to figure this out is to ask what you do with your time. You know, uh, years ago I did a series on busyness, and we talked about the importance of, of sort of charting our lives out. Meaning like, for example, uh, Watching television or checking Facebook, which is like drinking muriatic acid, whatever it is that, that you spend your time on, right? Try logging that for a day. Try logging how much you're reading books, how much you're, whatever it is. You'd be surprised what this stuff adds up to over the course of a week. 
And you might say, well, I really spend too much time drinking that muriatic acid. Maybe I should slow down a little bit. Or maybe I don't have any time in my life where I'm serving or caring for other people. Or I realize today I need to spend more time with my children. Whatever it is, these ideas really they start to dictate what matters to us. Here's another obvious one. What do you spend your money on? You know, money makes the world go round. That's the, the, the system of the world that we live in. And when I say spending money, what I'm saying is, is where are your financial priorities? Are they completely about self? Are they, you know, naively about others? Is there a balance? You can really determine a lot about life when you look at where your money goes because it is an indicator of what you value. What gets you excited in life? And what I simply mean by this is, like, what gets your motor running? Are you entrepreneurial? Do you, do you like serving people? These are great examples of figuring out, at least in part, what drives you. Or where does your mind naturally dream? This is what I like to ask people. Like, wh where do you daydream on a regular basis? Is it things like changing the world? Or is it hitting golf balls? Or is it surfing on the beach? Whatever it is, questions like this, they reveal something about us. They inform who we are. They help us to understand, whether we know it or not, where our center is, where our life priorities are. And oftentimes when we answer questions like this, what we will probably find is there's some really good stuff in there and some stuff that Christ likely wants us to work on. That's called being human and following Jesus. And if we can accept that reality, then there's no self-judgment there. We just recognize we're always growing in Christ. And the way we answer these questions are always going to change a little bit. That's a good thing. And so answering questions like this is extremely important for us to do. Because while many of the things we value most in life, almost everything I mentioned today, are valuable things. They are good things. The Bible says we'll never find Jesus' promised fullness in life. We'll never tap into the power of his gospel if we make them ultimate things. That's the literal vernacular we used here. Uh, we use here regularly. Good things, when they become ultimate things, are idols. And when they are idols, they will ultimately draw us away from Jesus. And when we are drawn away from Jesus, we are going to start living in less than the way we were meant to live. It's just the reality of our lives. The reality of this is that whatever we put at the center of our lives is going to become the motivation for why we live. And I'm just saying, since you only get like 80 to 85 years on this earth, depending on what your family background looks like and your genetics, we might want to consider how much effort and energy and thought we put into those years. So this is where things start to get interesting, because in the Bible there's only one approved thing, or we should say person, that is meant to be at the center of our lives, and consequently driving our thoughts, our emotions, and our actions, driving our heart. And it's Christ, that's no secret. It's wholeheartedly loving and pursuing the Lord first. And that really starts to shape the priorities of our lives. In fact, it brings weight to the priorities of our lives that maybe aren't even priorities. Like it's, I'm, I'm confident if you start asking this question, if you start putting Christ on the throne of your heart and you ask questions about your time and your money and your family and your friends and your people, what's going to happen is God values all of those things more than you and I could ever value them. I'm not saying you don't care about those things. I'm just saying God cares about people on earth more than we do. And what you'll find is when you tap into the rhythm of God, you'll start caring about the things you should care about and maybe moving away from the things that we need to care less about. You're going to start seeing and sensing the world through the eyes of God. And that's why the Bible says regularly to, to, perf, uh, to pursue another form of living is, is foolish. To, to sort of take a lesser priority and make it your ultimate priority blinds all of the other priorities that happen in your life or need to happen in your life. None of us have a linear world that we live in. It's very likely every single one of us in this room has like three to ten things that we're managing right now. And the way we begin to get clarity on the management is by sorting through what Christ says about this, sensing the power of his spirit, studying his word, praying, and being in community with people. What I'm trying to say here is that the only way you will truly find your center in life is by having a robust understanding of Jesus' gospel in your heart. That's where it begins. That's why we started this church. And that is why Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, calls this the truth of first importance. 
Uh, this is a fascinating statement. I teach this in our partnership class, which we're about to have in about six weeks. We talk uh, a lot about this idea because Paul is saying like, man, think about the Bible. We talked about truth about a month ago, right? But we believe in truth. What he's saying is, is there's a ton of truth in the Bible. This is the truth of first importance, though. Although the truth has led to this, and everything that's happened after this is, is bringing us back to it. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. This is the truth of first importance. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, he says, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is perhaps the clearest definition we have of the gospel in the whole Bible. And here the Apostle Paul calls the gospel a truth of first importance. And what this means in the Christian life is that every other area of life is supposed to be built on this truth and sustained by it. It isn't just the way we figure out how to get into heaven. That was a bit of a faulty evangelism tool we use. God cares about heaven, but not just heaven. In fact, if you're having a hard time in life right now, the thought of heaven is probably very far from you. God desires that the gospel be something that redeems us and sustains us. It is a forever thing, not just a future thing. It's a both and. And according to Paul here, what he says is, knowing the gospel means you deeply recognize because Jesus loves you, he came to earth and was willing to die for you and I, to redeem us. He went to the cross. Part of the gospel is recognizing Jesus' death for us. It's understanding that his death, his burial, and his resurrection, essentially his whole life is what he's saying here, is what first secures and then sustains you and I, our identity as beloved sons and daughters of God. It truly is the scriptural belief that says the root of God's love for us, for you, it isn't based on what we do. This is a hard thing for some of us to understand, especially if we are people who enjoy building our lives and working hard. It's sort of hard to recognize that God says you, can't, you cannot do this on your own. There, in fact, if we try to do this on our own, we might, be, we might find ourselves very far from the nature of what the gospel teaches. It teaches us that it's not what we do that redeems us or earns the favor or the merit of God. It's based on how much God has done for us in Jesus. It's recognizing God's first love for us in Christ and recognizing that the very same love he has for his son, that extravagant love is the very same love that he places on us through his son. And so if I may paraphrase Paul here, the summation of what he's saying is that when understanding with our head, our hearts, and our hands, when understanding and living out the gospel is the center of your life, it's at the center of your heart, then what happens is, Christ's love, Christ's words, Christ's sacrificial deeds, Christ's power, Christ's grace, Christ's truth is first given for you. And then it becomes the ultimate truth you live in and out of for others. In other words, you get really Jesus-centered in life. That's what he's saying here. And when this truth of first importance is now guiding your heart, not the litany of priorities we throw in the throne of our lives when we feel like it's the tyranny of the urgent. Here's what matters most today. I'm going to throw that up there and run like a chicken with no head. And then when that's solved, I'll throw another thing up there. And today I'm going to throw three things up there and run at all of them and miss them. To get away from that type of life, what, we're ta- what Paul is talking about here is there's, a, there's something meant to guide our heart. There is a truth of first importance that is meant to give us a filter to see life through. And when we press into that truth, when we ask God to make it clear and real in our hearts, when we have accountability with each other for it, two amazing things happen. This is how we'll begin to wrap up this morning. Here are the two action steps, the the evaluations, the evidence, you might say, of whether or not we deeply believe the gospel. There's outcomes for this. First, deeply believing the gospel removes you from the pressure cooker of performance-based religion. 
About 10 years ago, I read the word pressure cooker. I've cooked in them in restaurants many times. It's amazing what they do. They literally make everything happen hard and fast. You just close a lid on something, and then something that takes 20 minutes to cook, cooks in two minutes. It's amazing, the science behind that. But I found in my early days of faith, and for a lot of people, when they hear the word Jesus or God or the church, they are automatically slapped into this realm. They're, they're reminded of like a pressure box they were slammed into, trying to figure out how to love God, and it has burned them in bad ways. So I want you to know that deeply believing the gospel not only removes you from the pressure cooker of performance-based religion, but it can actually heal you. It keeps you away from it and can drive you to something much better. It allows you to truly live and grow in God's grace, which is the only way to become a more devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here. That's our ultimate prayer, is that we help people love God more deeply. It keeps us away, too. Think about this. It keeps us away from living with a very watered-down view of the gospel. One where a person's motive to follow Jesus is maybe selfish, or uh, I use the terms, this is not my original term, but I say it a lot here, it keeps us away from cheap grace, taking advantage of God, really sort of looking to him and, and undervaluing what his son has done for us. We see that at every communion. It helps us to sort of have parameters and boundaries, to not feel like we earn God's love or to take advantage of God's love. And here's what I mean by this. When you know in your heart that you can't do anything to earn or lose God's love for you, when you understand the truth of first importance, when you know that God loves you because he set his love on you in Jesus first, it's not just a freedom from sin's past penalty. That's what the cross does for us. It's also the power of God we rely on to be released from the presence of sin in our lives today. It doesn't make it go away, but it gives us an authority to stand in. It gives us a new set of lenses to look at to address these matters and to not be ruled by the problems of sin or fear or anxiety or tension. There's something very substantial that happens here when we press into God's truth. And this is the side of the gospel that I think is really fuzzy for people, especially if you have a church background. You know, we tend to think of the gospel as what you tell somebody for them to know God and get into heaven. And that's absolutely true. But there's a very big comma at the end of that. The gospel promise of Jesus on the cross, according to Paul here, both saves us and sustains us. It is what redeems us and allows us to stand. He doesn't just say it's a one-sided side of the fence. It redeems us and sustains us. And that's because Jesus is in a relationship with you. So he doesn't just offer you his grace and walk away. He offers you his grace and then you have him. That's why it sustains us. Jesus doesn't just offer us, think about this, God's grace to be forgiven of past sin. He actually offers us God himself. That's what he came to do. He came to say, my father is now available to you if you walk through me. Our transforming source of joy and strength for every aspect of life follows out of this truth. We press into Jesus when we want joy. I can be a pretty critical person, and so I ask God regularly to turn my criticality into joy. I ask of that, that of him, because there are lots of days when I try that and it doesn't work out so well. I have to go back to the gospel. I have to. I have to recognize that the, the joy of the cross, Paul tells us in Philippians, was set before Jesus, and he endured that because of his love for us. I find anything that you are dealing with, you're struggling with, the truth of first importance will address it in some way. If you're willing to be in the word, to speak to God and be in community with people. And what happens is, is if you miss this, if we build our church or continue to press forward into things that are disconnected from the truth of first importance, then you'll begin to take the responsibility of trying to grow as a disciple without God, which is impossible, or maybe not even at all. You cannot grow as Jesus' disciple without Jesus. He's got to be in the mix. This is some of the challenge here. And this is also what helps us to avoid the cheap grace side of this. If we develop a, a God-centered attitude that says, hey, he'll just do it for us, and we don't engage with what he gives us, or we neglect the disciplines of gospel community and mission, what happens is we're sort of like souring the soil God desires to work in. 
When the hope of the Christian faith is found in, in deeply believing God already did it for us on the cross. That's what happens. It's a tension here. I recognize that. In, in, in one way, Paul is saying, like, you can't do anything. But then in another way, he's saying, but you have to do something. We have to turn to and press into that power as followers of Jesus. And certainly, communally as a church. Because the result of trying to follow Jesus without his truth, the truth of first importance, creates a subtle but absolutely detrimental heart attitude that leads us to believe we are saved by God's grace alone, but then we have to work to keep it. That is the cardinal failure of the evangelical church today, I think, at least when we've gotten the gospel wrong. We have preached it is in grace alone that we find Christ, but then we subliminally think like, hey, but I got to hustle hard to keep God's love in my life. That is a recipe for disaster. When people live with this view of God in their life, they stop living to love God with all their heart. And they start believing God is a cruel taskmaster who has this sort of merit-demerit system where he passes out and withholds his love according to some, some spiritual system. Now, hear me clearly. God's love can never be rescinded from us when we're in him, but his favor can. That's a big difference. God can frown deeply upon what we do and be generally and at times greatly displeased. But it can never be to the point where when we are in Christ that it can be taken from us. And I'm telling you, if we think that God's love is doled out when we make him happy and removed On the days we fail, this is going to cripple our ability to experience the freedom Jesus purchased for you and I on the cross with his blood. And it's going to stop people who need to find Jesus from growing in him. And it's going to continue to hurt those who need to be healed if they've been in an abusive form of faith like this. Our ability to be loved by God is built solely on Jesus first freeing us, not not us freeing ourselves. And so this is what we call, we won't talk about this at length today, but this is what we call Jesus' justification. It simply means that Jesus did pay it all. When we sing that song, it is absolutely true. God loves us because of what he's done for us, not because of what we do for God. God is greatly pleased in the things that we do for him. Don't hear me disconnecting that either. He loves it when we are faithful and obedient to him. But that love is not what has cemented us to him or him to us. It is Christ's spilled blood. And when it is that that we are functioning in, when it is that truth of first importance that defines it as guiding life, it rather naturally shapes our actions and frees us to really live for God in our lives. Action matters, hear me. But our actions are going to be incorrect if we're, we're a, a lemon tree trying to produce figs or vice versa. We've got to know what the root of the tree is. We've got to know what the root of the fruit we're trying to grow is. And that's what this is. And this leads me to the second and the last thing I'll mention to you this morning. Deeply believing that the gospel should, deeply believing the gospel should affect everything you do or do not do in your life. Here's sort of where the rubber meets the road here. What we believe in our hearts about Christ, all the things we've been talking about, how we understand the truth of first importance has an effect on lives. And it actually shapes what we do. And I think it's important to mention what we don't do. Because in our busy modern Western world, we tend to gauge life by what we're doing. And at times I think we can be blind to the things that maybe we should be doing. This is a double-sided coin. This is one of the main points Jesus is getting at when he talks about what resides in the center of our hearts in Luke 6 what should reside at the center of our church. This is a short statement with a really deep implication. And I find Jesus is the master of this. He throws like a sentence out that you'll spend your whole life figuring this out and processing this. And I think that's by design because I think in its healthiest sense, it drives us to him to press into him. We recognize this is a very big ask and we can't do it without Christ. And I think when we finally come to that place, God does smile in heaven because we're right where we need to be. We're resting in his grace and his mercy trying to figure this stuff out. This is significant stuff. And what it means is that to really have the gospel in your heart means you no longer make decisions in this life based on, please hear me here. And everything I'm saying to you, I'm saying to me. To have the, the gospel, the truth of first importance at the center of our lives means we don't ask what we should or should not do based on what we feel we should do. 
what we want to do at times, what might even be convenient in our lives. Those are not the questions that define the truth of first importance. Because if they were, Jesus would have never went to the cross. It was not good for him. It was not beneficial for him. It did not advantage him in any way. It was not convenient. All those were X's when you asked those questions. What drove Christ to the cross for us was his profound love for his father and his deep care and empathy for us. There are different questions driving his life. His motive is not about what's going on. His motive is about what God wants. This is interesting when you think about this, because what it means is, for some of us, we might need to have new questions driving our life. What does the gospel of Jesus say I should do in whatever the situation is before me? That's the question, not the other ones I just mentioned. So think about this, some application points. Can you imagine what our lives, our churches, this church, our communities, our cities, the whole earth would look like? This is a very idealistic statement, but I want you to think about it for a moment. If every single Christian approached every single decision before them, not asking what is convenient for me, what works for me, what is good for me, but rather what does the gospel of Jesus Christ ask of me, if that is the mission driving our life, how does Jesus' life first live for me, his death, his burial, his resurrection, how does that alter the way I now serve God and live for others? That's going to change things dramatically and instantly. How does this affect the way I love my neighbor, the way I engage and support my local church family? How does it affect the way I see my money, my financial support of this work, and the needs of those whom God puts in my life outside of this place? Truly, our money and our time belongs to God. That's what the Bible says. Be wise with it, obviously. But ultimately, it's his. It's a different question. How does it affect the way I see my time, the way I treat the most important relationships in my life? How does it affect the way I see my career, the way I love my wife, or the way I love my husband, or my kids, or my cousins, or my uncles, or whatever? How we love people. The way you answer those questions what Jesus is saying here is it truly reveals whether or not you're living with the truth of first importance in your heart. It does. Those actions or lack of actions reveal the center. And I really believe if we pressed into Jesus' gospel like that, a movement of God would happen in our world. And that's my next series. We've got some time to get there, but movement is what I want to talk about. What are the monikers, the marks, where God has worked in amazing ways? And by amazing, I don't mean sensational. I mean, where is God's presence seen in the world, past, present, and now? What is it that sort of precedes that? Movement. Think about this for a minute. I believe if we press into Jesus' gospel like that, a movement of God would happen in our world. But please know that movement, which is a grandiose idea, and it's what we're praying for right now for our next eight years, this doesn't begin globally. That's why we start it. We read about something that happens someplace else. Or it doesn't even begin locally. Movement doesn't begin up the street. It doesn't even begin in this room with a sermon. I mean, I spend a lot of time each week writing these things, but sermons are not the epicenter of where revivals start, where movement begins. They can be a bit of a catalyst at times, but we haven't seen that happen in a very long time in this side of the world. They are important, but it's not the place where it begins. Movement begins in you. Movement begins when these ideas, these truths, these realities become something we wrestle with, and then through that wrestling, God makes them real. That's where a movement begins. And if it's just you following God alone, Without this church, without any church, that is a movement because God is moving in you. And that's why I say we'll never see or sense movement here, which is our prayer, if we don't recognize that it begins right here. It begins in the center. And when that happens, when you value the truth of first importance above all else, that's the foundation for movement. When that happens, you'll find that the things Jesus asks of you and I, the things he desires us to be as a disciple, the way he asks us to live his li our lives for him on this earth, the sacrificial mission he calls us to, to make disciples. I'm not saying that that stuff gets any easier, 
But I am saying it will start to make more sense in your heart because the center is looking in the right direction. Those sacrifices become worth it. That's the essence of any good mission. People say, yes, this is difficult, but what's on the other side of the mission is worth it. That's why I'm going to move through the, the muck. I'm going to push on. That's what mission is, and that's exactly what Jesus left us, and it's why it's one of the three words driving who we are and what we do. Making disciples isn't necessarily any easier, but there's a deeper sense in our hearts of why it's a commitment worth making, because loving God above all else is now the motive driving life, and that shapes all the other things. You ought to love God and the people in your workplace, in your school, in your vocations. We don't get to just love God in this room around good donuts, although that's fun. There are people out there meant to be loved. And there are times in our lives when we need people to love us. And so as we, as we give thanks to God for the eight years he's given us a restoration this morning, I really want to ask God to give us the strength and the courage to live the days and years that he set in front of us, uh, personally experiencing, this is what Paul says, this truth I bring to you I first experienced, and I want you to press into it because it's redeemed and sustained you. I want us to pray about having the strength and the courage to personally experience the truth of verse importance in new and meaningful ways for the first time if you're not in Christ. And I would pray or ask us to pray that we would devotedly display the life that Jesus has lived for us to each other and our neighbors, that it would be contagious in the places we go. And I leave you with this because my words, while I hope they matter to you, they are not as powerful or as important as the words of our scripture. And so I want to leave you with Paul's powerful words as we close this morning. Let this be the guiding drive, the, the center that drives you. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Why is it important that the truth of first importance is at the center of our hearts? Paul says this. Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, I preach to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Here is your gospel. And in accordance with the scriptures, he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. His death, his burial, and his resurrection should be at the center of our lives and driving every action of our lives. I pray that is a reality in your life this moment and in the days that follow.